We did Psalm 1 last week, and we saw that Psalms 1 and 2 are purposefully put at the beginning of the Psalter as the introduction to introduce all 148 Psalms that follow. And so, to our eyes, though these two chapters may not appear to have much in common at first, and like Psalm 1 is this wisdom psalm, and it's talking about uh, the, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, and it focuses on God's word and God's law. And then you come to Psalm 2, and it feels like the whole flavor of things changes, and now we have a royal psalm. And it speaks of God's anointed king ruling from Jerusalem with sovereign authority over all. And, and so, in a sense, we love both psalms, but, but too often we love them separately. Last week that we saw that, in fact, these two psalms are really a single unit. And I'm, I'm convinced that either they were originally one psalm when they first came from the pen of the psalmist, or, or they were two, but the person who composed them composed them together as a two-part set. It's impossible. I don't, I don't see any way to conceive of it otherwise. And so in your handout, on the last page, I'm just going to refer to this at the very beginning. The very last page, there's, and I forgot to get myself a copy, but there's three, don't, don't, I don't need one, that's fine in case. Uh, there's, there's brackets on the right side. Those brackets on the right side show how Psalm 1 has its own inclusio. It has a beginning and an end that brackets Psalm 1. The brackets on the, on the right side also show how Psalm 2 has the same thing. So Psalm 1 and 2 are clearly distinct units. But look on the left side, and you'll see that Psalm 1 begins with a reference to murmuring, and Psalm 2 begins with a reference to murmuring. And, and they're very parallel. Psalm 1 ends with a reference um, to the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 2 ends with a reference to perishing in the way. And then you find this ultimate inclusio where Psalm 1 begins at the very beginning, blessed, how blessed is the man who, and then Psalm 2 ends with the very last words, how blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So as you see those brackets, you see how it's put together, and if you looked at all the words, and you can, you can explore those with that, I encourage you to do that. I hope you'll see why I kind of, my hand was forced. I had to preach Psalm 2 if we've preached Psalm 1. So it just goes together. We're going to see then, we saw last week, um, a bit of how these psalms fit together. It's not just that you've got words that match. It's not just that he said, oh, let's put this word here and match it. It's that there's a whole theme that goes together. And so what we started last week, we will finish today. We're going to try to finish that today in Psalm 2. Part 2 of the introduction to the psalms. It begins like this. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples murmur vanity. The kings of the earth take their stand. And the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. It's a very vivid picture. 
this picture has been around since the beginning of history, and certainly we see it in unique ways today. The nation's raging and murmuring vanity. Remember how Psalm 1 began with, with this beatitude. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of who? The wicked. And the way of sinners does not sit. And the, way of, and the seat of scoffers does not sit. And the way of sinners does not stand. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law he murmurs. He talks to himself day and night. Now at the beginning of Psalm 2, we have the opposite picture being painted. It's the exact opposite. Here are the wicked. You know the, you know the way that the, this man doesn't walk in? Well, here are the people who do walk in that way. Here they are. Here are the sinners. Here are the scoffers. Here are the people murmuring. They're murmuring too. But they're not murmuring humility and thanksgiving and obedience to God's law. They're murmuring pride and discontent in their heart and rebellion. So instead of delighting in the law of the Lord in their deepest heart of hearts, they're not delighting, they're murmuring plans to throw off his fetters, as it calls it, to cast away his cords from them. So for, for those who are still dead in their sins, right? The rule of God, who is the holy and the righteous law giver, will always be something restrictive. It's always going to be something burdensome and oppressive. In other words, cords that chafe, right? And fetters that imprison. The Apostle Paul says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. So when we consider his law as those in the flesh, his law is to us as cords that are chafing us. It is, it is as fetters that imprison us. The one in the flesh does not subject himself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. That's the picture we're seeing here in Psalm 2. And so those who are still dead in their sins, all they can think of is bursting those fetters and casting those cords away. But for the person who's been raised up with Christ, who, who delights now in God's law, this is what he hears God saying, Hosea 11. I was just curious about these cords. So Hosea 11 says, I led them with ropes of a man with cords of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. What a a difference. How can you have the same law and one person is chafing under it, biting at the bit to get away from it, wanting to burst it, to cast it away, and the other person feels that he's being, being led by cords of love. This is the work God does in us through his spirit. He says, I bent down and fed them. Today under the new covenant, today, the one who murmurs God's law day and night is the one who's received and he has believed these words of Jesus. And I encourage you to receive and believe them now. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, not because he he doesn't require anything, not because it's not a, a, a just and holy law, 
but because we've come to Jesus as the keeper of that law and the one who leads us in keeping that law. We're going to see that this morning. He says, my burden is light. This is our approach to the law. And brothers and sisters, if that is your approach to the law of God, that's the result of a miracle that he's worked in you. Because that's not the case for the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. All they can think of is casting off what for them is an oppressive yoke of authority and rule. So the kings of the earth, they take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, says the psalmist, and against his anointed. So how do people rebel against God? They do it, more, they do it practically by rebelling against his anointed. And who is this anointed? Now this is important because this is assumed in the psalm, but it's not something we automatically see. We can picture a coronation ceremony in Israel. So the, a new king, it's time for the new king. He's going to be crowned, he's going to be installed on the throne. And I'm quoting a commentator here, he says, At the coronation, the new king first pledged fidelity or faithfulness or obedience to Yahweh's covenant, to the law. And he was then crowned as the rightful ruler. Only then was he anointed with holy oil, becoming the anointed of the Lord. So we see that in 2 Kings chapter 11, an example of this. Then Jehoiada the priest brought the king's son out and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony, the law. And they made him king and anointed him. Who is the anointed of the Lord? He's the one who's been given the law. And they clapped their hands and said, long live the king. So we see in this ceremony that the new king is given a copy of the testimony So Yahweh's anointed is subject to Yahweh's law. Being the king in Israel didn't mean you were the law, right? It meant you too were subject to the law of God, which we saw in Psalm 1. That explains these instructions for the king in Deuteronomy, and especially for the king. Not everyone had to do this or could do this. Now it will be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Remember, not all the people in the land had their own copy of the law. They just didn't have publishing houses that published these things. So the king, but he needed his own copy, was to write it in the presence of the priests, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God, to carefully observe all the words of this law. And these statutes. Now do you see what's happening here? This is what's assumed. Behind the scenes here. That we may miss. Yahweh's anointed. Was to lead the people. As someone who delighted. In Yahweh's law. As one murmuring his law. Day and night. Psalm chapter 1. He was to be that supremely blessed man in Psalm 1. So that he might lead the people into obedience. The people needed a king who would lead them into obedience. Into delighting. Into murmuring and meditating the law of God. It's this faithful king 
who we have envisioned in Psalm 2. That's the assumption. So that when the nations rebel against him, who are they rebelling against? They're rebelling against God and the law that he has given. Of course, most of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem were not faithful. They didn't delight in God's law. They didn't murmur it day and night. David and Solomon, things looked pretty good. The rule of God's anointed was going out to a lot of the surrounding nations, but then Solomon died, and after that it was pretty much a story of continual decline until Jerusalem's destroyed, the throne is empty, and it's during this time when the throne is empty that all the faithful in Israel, they would lament, they would lament with these words. But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your slave. You have profaned his crown to the ground. Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your slaves, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Yahweh, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. See, Psalm 2, yeah, it might have made sense in the days of David and Solomon. But what do you do with Psalm 2 when the crown of Yahweh's anointed is profaned to the ground? What do you do with Psalm 2 then? Because it was actually during just such a time as that, when the crown was profaned to the ground, that this Psalter was given its final shape and Psalm 2 was put at the beginning to introduce the entire book. It was precisely at a time when the throne was in ruins that this chapter was carefully placed at the beginning. And so the same people who murmured the lament in Psalm 89, they never stopped murmuring Psalm 2. See, this was, this was their lifeblood. They never stopped talking to themselves. They never stopped murmuring by faith these words. These words. Why do the nations rage and the peoples murmur vanity? Now, brothers and sisters, that's faith. Because they're sitting now at a place where there is no king in Jerusalem. They're surrounded by the pagan nations and empires and world powers that, that threaten to engulf them. And what are these, what are these little measly little people in, in, in Jerusalem doing? What are they saying? What are they murmuring to themselves? Why do the nations rage and the peoples murmur? vanity. A lot of times we hear, why? Why, O Lord? How long? Why? That's lament. This why is not lament. It's not lament. I imagine when the psalmist's why do the nations rage, I imagine first being astonished. Why are they, why are they doing this? What are they thinking? And then amused and then indignant. What he's saying is, why are they attempting something so foolish, so utterly vain? Are they out of their minds? Have they lost their senses? But then we might say of that man or woman or child, how can you murmur those words when Yahweh's crown is lying in the dust? Suddenly the scene shifts from earth to heaven. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is what we need is is the perspective shift. So often our eyes are this way. We're, 
we're looking at the realities of earth. Now Psalm 2 calls us to lift our eyes to heaven. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So in verses 1 to 3, we saw the kings of the earth all gathered together. Now, verses 4 to 6, we lift our eyes. And I think that's a beautiful picture. Sometimes you need to physically lift your eyes and just say, okay, God, you're not bound by this. You're above this. You're sovereign over this. We lift our eyes to the one who sits in the heavens. This time, instead of referring to God by his covenant name, Yahweh, and again, as I, again, I, I do want to clarify, as I said in Sunday school, we don't know for sure that's how his name was spoken or pronounced. I struggle with just saying the Lord because that sounds just like a title. This was God's covenant name. But now, instead of referring to him by that name, the psalmist refers to him as Adonai. It is Adonai, which means the master. It means ruler. It means sovereign lord. The one who sits in the heavens. That's the one who mocks. All the peoples and nations and kings and rulers of the earth. When I thought about that, I was just reminded of the first words of the prayer. Jesus taught us to pray. What are the first words? Our Father, who is in heaven. Therefore, he has the dominion. Because, you know, that's not just a bare statement of spatial location. Where is God? Oh, he's in heaven and we're here. No, it's a confession of faith. When we begin, when we pray and we begin, our Father who is in heaven, that's a confession of faith. What does it mean that our Father is in heaven? And that this is the one, and the one who is in heaven is the one we come to in prayer. Well, the psalmist answers this. It's it's throughout the Psalms. But Psalm 11 says, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes, therefore, behold. His being in heaven doesn't mean he's detached and far off, although he is separate. But what it means is that from heaven, he looks down and he sees all and knows all. His eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all dominion. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. To you then, the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes. The one enthroned in the heavens. There is a sad humor, if I can use that expression. There is a sad humor in in these verses. I don't think that it's up to us to laugh like God laughs because we're not God. But you know, the fact that he laughs comforts me. So it's from his throne in the heavens the Lord looks down and he sees all the kings of the earth all gathered together. I'm reminded of when God came down to see the tower that the sons of men were building to reach up into heaven. Let's reach up to heaven. And God says, let's go down and see it. The Lord looks down from heaven and he hears all their murmuring and from his throne in the heavens, Yahweh Adonai laughs 
That's what he does. And, and again, it is the sound of this laughter that immediately in your handout dispels all the fear of men. The pent-up fear that builds and builds. When we hear that laughter, it dispels the fear. And it stills all our trembling. How good it is, and we don't do it enough, do we? How good it is to lift our eyes from the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers on earth to the one who sits in the heavens, to lift up our eyes to the one enthroned. How good it is, how good it is to pray, our Father who is in heaven. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So I just want us to be clear, and this is powerful. Um, Yahweh's answer to the nations, because they're all the nations are, and now the question is, what's God going to do? How's God going to answer this? His answer is this. It is the coronation ceremony. It is the enthronement ceremony of his anointed. That's his answer. The wicked and sinners and scoffers, Psalm 1, they can, they can murmur and plot rebellion all they want, but the sovereign Lord who sits in the heavens, he has spoken, and the word that he has spoken is to be believed, brothers and sisters. It's to be believed. Because what does the psalmist say in Psalm 119? Forever, O Yahweh, your word stands firm in heaven. So let's put that together. Okay. When the Jew in post-exilic Jerusalem looked at the crown and saw it profaned in the dust, he lifted up his eyes then to heaven, where Yahweh's throne remained untouched, and where his word of promise stood firm. See, when you're looking down here, and the circumstances are telling you otherwise, we raise our eyes, we lift up our eyes to heaven, where his throne is untouched, where his word of promise stands firm, as the psalmist says, forever it is firm in heaven. What does it mean that Yahweh has installed as king on Zion? What does that mean for the nations, first of all, who are murmuring rebellion? Can't be good. But but what does it mean for you? What what does it mean for me, for the people delighting in the law of the Lord and murmuring his law day and night? So after describing the scene on earth, we saw that. And then with a wonderful sense of relief, we lifted up our eyes to the scene in heaven. Now we come back to earth again, or maybe not so today. And we hear Yahweh's anointed speaking. And speaking, as it were, directly to you. So listen carefully now to what he says. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now I like this because, you know, when he says, I will surely tell. This is not something sober. It's not something, I will surely tell because I was constrained to do so. Because I have to do so. Because it's just my obligation. There's no dutiful grudging attitude here. Here's the the anointed of the Lord saying, I will surely tell. Right? Right? I'm going to tell it. I'm not keeping this to myself. 
with joy and gladness, with thanksgiving and praise. And again, who's he telling? He's not telling God. God's the one who told him. He's not telling himself. He already knows. When he says, I will surely tell, he's saying, I'm going to tell my people. It's for us to know. Yahweh said to me, this is what he said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There is infinite comfort in those words for us. When did God say that? When exactly does Yahweh beget his son? Now we're not talking about the eternal generation of the son now. We're talking about the Davidic king. When does God take that king to be his son? Second Samuel chapter 7 says, Yahweh also declares to you, David, that Yahweh will make a house for you. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you, who will come forth from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. This is not sonship by nature. This is, this is God uh, creating a relationship of sonship with this Davidic king. When he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not be removed from him. Here's the word of God. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So here's how it was. On, on the coronation day of each successive king in David's line, that king was taken up into a position, a relationship of royal sonship. He being a son to Yahweh, Yahweh being a father to him, and all of this because of God's everlasting covenant with David. And we're watching all of this, and we're understanding that we're going to be called up into that. What does that sonship mean? It means, number one, The king is not going to rule for himself. He's not ruling independent of God. He is to mediate as the son of God. He mediates the rule of God, his father, over his people. And even over all the earth. This is this king. This is God's plan to accomplish the redemption of his people. This is why Yahweh's son, what what does Yahweh's son do? Well, he writes for himself a copy of Yahweh's law. And he keeps it with him. And he reads from it all the days of his life. He delights in the law. He murmurs it day and night so that he might do what? So that he might lead in your handout, so that he might lead the people into obedience. Brothers and sisters, we are all like sheep that have gone astray, aren't we? We need a shepherd king who leads us into obedience obedience but what about the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers we say who murmur vanity who are saying let's burst their fetters apart and cast their cords from us well the anointed continues telling us what the decree of Yahweh is what he said to him you are my son today I have begotten you ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance And the ends of the earth is your possession. Okay, this is the promise God makes to his anointed. Brothers and sisters, take comfort in this. Because as I'm going to ask later, 
Will God's anointed fail to ask? And will God fail to give what he asks for? Our salvation is bound up in the given word of God to his anointed son and in the assurance that his anointed son will indeed ask for the nations. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. Here's the overarching message of the Psalter. It is this. The supreme happiness of obedience to God's law in light of the absolute certainty of his sovereign rule and kingship over all the earth. You need both of those things, brothers and sisters, if you're to live a victorious and faithful Christian life. We must grasp the absolute certainty of God's sovereign rule and kingship over our lives individually, over his church, and over all this planet earth. And as we do that, we can also grasp the supreme happiness of those who live in obedience to his law. He will manifest this rule specifically, though, through a righteous king who will lead his people into obedience and who will destroy, in the language of the confession, all his and their enemies. I'm reminded here then of the closing words of Psalm 1, going back to Psalm 1. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. How do we know the way of the wicked will perish, brothers and sisters? How do we know that? We know it because of the decree that God has made concerning his son. And because of the prayer he has called his son to pray. We've heard then, we've heard the nations murmuring, okay? Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. We've heard Yahweh's speech in heaven, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. We've heard the Lord's anointed telling of Yahweh's decree. I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh, he said to me. Okay, we've heard all these different speeches, but now we need to remember that all these speeches are all part of the murmurings of God's people. We hear these speeches and we murmur the whole dialogue, the whole thing, so that we might be a people of faith living in obedience to God day by day by day. It was as God's people murmured these words, their faith was strengthened. And they were enabled first at the beginning of the psalm to ask themselves, why do the nations rage and the people's murmur vanity? Brothers and sisters, we need to be able to pray those words today of all times, right? And then at the end of the psalm too, they they move beyond just asking, why are they doing this? Why are they doing such vanity? Then they address directly all the kings and judges of the earth. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. In other words, do homage to the sun lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Even in the Old Testament, when the crown of the anointed was lying profaned in the ground, in the dust, we see the transforming power of faith 
in the word God has spoken. I would call us to a simple faith in the word God speaks. One day, those men, women, and children who lived in that day, they said one day the wrath of this coming righteous king will be kindled and the wicked and the sinners and the scoffers will all perish in the way. Psalm chapter 1, the way of the wicked will perish. In that light, how blessed then, how supremely happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and in the way of sinners does not stand and in the seat of scoffers does not sit. One day the coming righteous king is going to say to Yahweh. So the son will say to his father, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. The idea is you have opened my ears to hear and obey your law. Or perhaps you have opened to, to make me your slave so that I live in obedience. Either way, it's the idea of obedience to the law of God. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. Here's, here's the beautiful words. I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my inner being. This is what the king says, the son. And now in turn, the father will say to his son, your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. When the writer of Hebrews quotes this passage, he uses the word lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. Once again, we can sit and we can read Psalm 2 and feel a bit like we're on the outside looking in. But the reality is that this whole conversation between the father and the son, the son saying, I delight to do your will, Lord. I delight your law is in my inner being. And the father saying to the son, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, I've anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. When we hear all of this, what we see is the king who will destroy all the wicked, all the sinners, all the scoffers, and who will lead his people into the way of obedience. This is the king who leads us into that supreme happiness of obedience to God's law. Because due to my sin, due to my stubbornness, due to my deadness in sin, I need a king powerful enough to release me from that, to call me out of it, and to lead me in the way of obedience. You can read Psalm 1 all you want, right? But if you don't have a king to lead you in that way, you're not going to get there. If the Old Testament saints murmured these words by faith, and here this is, I'm going to say this, I think, three times, because this is, if the Old Testament saints murmured these words by faith, when the crown of God's anointed is lying profaned in the dust, how much more should we be able to murmur these words by faith who see Jesus? Yahweh's king, even now, 
installed upon Zion, his holy mountain. Because here's the thing. The crown is no longer lying profane in the dust. It's, It's no longer that way. He has been installed upon Zion, Yahweh's holy mountain. If they could murmur these words by faith when the crown was profane in the dust, how much more should we be able to now, who look to Jesus as our king, who leads us now in the way of obedience. Paul said in one of his sermons, and we proclaim to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. When did God the Father beget Jesus at one level from all eternity past, but we're talking about the servant son. The father begat Jesus when he raised him to his right hand, installed him on the throne. The author of Hebrews writes, having accomplished cleansing for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, as he said to Jesus, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Do we think, Jesus will fail to ask for the nations as his inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession. And if we don't think he will fail to ask, which many of the kings in Israel did because they didn't seem to care, Jesus will not fail to ask. And if we know he won't fail to ask, do we really think that his father will fail to give these to him? Sometimes we just like God making promises direct to me. But it is good for us to hear the promise God makes to his son. Because in, in, in that is a promise to all of us who have believed in his son. Do we think that Jesus will fail, though the time prolongs itself, at least for us, Will he fail to break all the wicked and sinners and scoffers with a rod of iron and shatter those who murmur vanity like a potter's vessel? Will he fail to do this? Jesus says of the one who faces persecution and suffering and even martyrdom, and he shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now this is an astonishing thing because the very words that the father decreed concerning his son, now Jesus extends to us. He will rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. But then he says, as I also have received authority from my father. Revelation 19, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And then he quotes, I believe this is from Isaiah, but the language still mirrors Psalm 2. And he treads the winepress of the fury Orge, of the anger, Thumas, of God the Almighty. Psalm 2 ends, 
Then he, or in, in Psalm 2 it says, then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury. If the Old Testament saints murmured these words by faith when the crown was in ruins, how much more should we be murmuring these words by faith when we lift up our eyes to the heavens and who do we see there? Yahweh's anointed. Installed upon Yahweh's holy mountain. Spend more time with your eyes lifted up. Right? Because how much more then should we be those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked? If the psalmist could say such things, how much more should we be able to say such things? Who do not sit and stand in the way of sinners and who do not sit in the seat of scoffers? How much more? We read Psalm 119 and we see the psalmist in 119, his, his delight and his love for the law of God, how sweet it was to him, how precious. He delighted in that law because of faith in the coming Messiah. How much more should we delight in that law who see Jesus enthroned who leads us into the way of obedience? He kept the whole law for us. He suffered the whole curse of the law in our place. In his death, I have died to my sin and to the power of sin. By his life, we live to righteousness. And now, as our king, and this is, we, we, we can think of Christ as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king. But we're talking about his kingship here. And what is his kingly work in our lives? The confession puts it really well. And I'm borrowing the language right here. As our king, he is, he is daily subduing us to himself. Drawing us. Upholding us. Delivering us. And preserving us to his heavenly kingdom. A kingdom of uprightness. And so with all of our hearts. We agree then with the psalmist when he concludes, returning to where he started in Psalm 1, but now with a different note to the words. And how blessed, how supremely happy are all who take refuge in Yahweh's anointed. I'm going to ask one last time. If an Old Testament believer could murmur those words by faith, How much more should we who lift up our eyes and see Jesus installed on Zion, Yahweh's holy mountain? How blessed. How blessed are all who do not seek to tear his fetters apart or cast away his cords from them. I encourage us to consider that we're either doing one or the other at a fundamental level. We're either those tearing the fetters apart and casting his cords from us. We're either those feeling that his cords chafe and his fetters imprison. Or we are those who trust him. And who are being daily led by him, by cords of love, into the way of obedience. If you want to understand Psalm 1, if you want to know the blessedness, of the man in Psalm 1. 
then you have to lift up your eyes to the heavens and see Jesus installed on Mount Zion. And know that he has the power to take you from your sins, from your deadness, from your resistance to the law of God, and lead you into the way of obedience. Don't do it. This is not something we do in our own strength. We look to our king to lead us in that way. How blessed then indeed. How supremely happy are all who take refuge in him. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for Psalms 1 and 2. We thank you that there is such a thing as supreme happiness. And that this supreme happiness is available to every single soul in this room. And Lord, we thank you that this happiness has been made available to us through Jesus Christ. Who having kept the law for us, having suffered the curse of the law in our place, now leads us out of our bondage and slavery to lawlessness and sin and into the way of the righteous, the way of obedience. We thank you for this shepherd king who leads us so faithfully, so patiently. Lord, we pray that you would, by your marvelous grace, continue to tame our hearts, to subdue our wills, to draw us Should there be anyone today for whom your law and even the news of your gospel does not feel or sound good, I pray, Lord, that that even now you would show them the sweetness and the preciousness of every word that you have spoken. That we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. For those of us who can, albeit imperfectly and with so many shortcomings, who can speak those words, let us be reminded that it is not of ourselves or from ourselves that we can speak these words ultimately, but due to a mighty work of grace in us. We thank you that what you have begun, you will complete, that you will, as we confess, that you will preserve us safe into your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to murmur faithfully until we arrive in, 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 in your kingdom, in glory, and faith becomes sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.